Hi, I'm Alison. Welcome to Dream Chasers Adventures in Happiness, where my band of superhero guests and I share with you tales of daring do, life-changing journeys towards living our best lives. If you're after an injection of inspiration and ideas to live the life that you want and deserve, you're in the right place. Let's dive in. Hi there, and welcome to the show where we serve up conversation, concepts, and belief that it really is possible to create what you crave. If there's something stopping you from pursuing happiness, whatever that looks like to you from a career or lifestyle point of view, the stories and insights covered here are designed to help. Now today, I'm joined by my awesome friend and old client, Elijah Lawal. Elijah is a British-Nigerian published author and screenwriter. In 2019, his first non-fiction book, The Clapback, was published by Hodder and Stoughton, and it was really well received. It led to loads of media coverage, and Elijah was recognised as one of the top 30 black authors by the Black British Business Awards. Now, he also has a day job. He can be found working as a communications and public affairs manager at Google. So these are pretty impressive credentials, right? But back in 2014, none of this was a reality. Elijah was a PR guy in London, feeling like he wasn't really hitting his potential and kind of lost about what that really even meant. He just had a sense that something was missing. So how did he go from that place to defining his dream goal, which was to write his first book and become a published author, and then make that dream a reality. Let's find out. Welcome to the show, Elijah. Thank you so much. It's so weird to hear that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> it's you and your awesomeness. <laughs> so listen, can I take you back to 2014 and just get you to share a little bit about how you were feeling at that time you know where was your head at and what was it that made you reach out for help yeah it's as you mentioned I had a I had a great job in London working in PR but I just kind of felt that even though things were going great there was there was more to be achieved and not necessarily more in terms of quantity but more in terms of so achieving what I really want and being really true mm. and authentic to my dreams and goals. But I just kind of had to figure out what that was. But it was really weird because it almost felt like I was living a mirror life where there was one version of me, Elijah A, that had a great day job and was just ticking along. And then Elijah B, that just wanted to do more things and wanted to achieve slight, slightly more, but I wasn't sure how quite to get there. And it took a lot of, uh, a lot of introspection and a lot of work, uh, a lot of working with you to kind of realize that I wanted to, I really wanted my passion to come through in my life and, and just kind of understanding that writing was that passion and then how I could make that passion a reality and part of my day-to-day life. So it, it felt like I was living in a mirror world where I, mm. I was happy with all these things, but I just wanted, wanted a little bit more in terms of quality. And you felt, yeah, yeah. I, and you know, I remember that conversation about Elijah A and Elijah B. And I think a lot of people probably relate to this feeling like you just quite weren't stepping into what you, you sense was much greater potential, but not really knowing how to cross the chasm. 
you obviously went from feeling a bit lost to kind of reaching that eureka moment that a lot of people dream of, uh, where you realised that writing wasn't just an outlet for you, but really a raison d'etre. Can you describe what it was that sort of brought you to that realisation? Absolutely. And you had a huge part to, to play in that. I don't think I'll ever forget that first conversation we ever had where you actually genuinely asked me. I think when people ask, what do you want to do? It's either in the, in the sphere of what do you want to do for a living or what do you want to achieve in the next five years? What's your five-year plan? I don't think up until that moment, anyone had genuinely asked what I want to do in a way that made it seem like this was, as you said, my raison d'etre, as opposed to how are you going to make money, etc. So it was like the light switch, it just kind of popped up and switched on. And suddenly the path forward was clearer. And I didn't necessarily know how to go about achieving that. But at the same time, it was clear and very useful to have a North Star. So I'm really grateful to you. And then over the course of you and I working together, just lots of your lessons around, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about that answer. And then how do we move forward with that was really, really useful. And also just teaching me to trust my guts. And I know when people say that, it almost feels like, oh, you know, you just need to listen to your brain. But, you know, teaching me to listen to my body, like how do I physically react to certain opportunities? It was really helpful and it really just helped push me in the right direction. Oh, you're very lovely. Thank you. But no, is that, well, I, actually, I really remember, you know, some of the exercises and the questions I asked you. What was most striking to me was that you always wanted to write your answers. You wanted to think about it, but you wanted to write it down. And, and, and often as not in a narrative, like in a storytelling kind of way. And so, you know, it was it was uh, it was very, very delightful for me to get to read <laughs> the things that you'd written, but it very quickly became quite clear that this was something that you just loved beyond anything else. So how did it feel to you to embrace that, that writing dream? You know, when you decided that you were just actually, you were going to have a real go at it. What did that feel like? It was, it was scary. <laughs> I think <laughs> once you... If you feel like something's not quite right, or if you feel like you have more to go on, but you haven't actually sat mm. down to examine what that is, that's almost a, a kind of get out of jail free card because they're just like, oh, I just haven't figured out what it is yet. I have actually figured out what it is and what it, or what it was at the time. And I was confident in myself again, thanks to, thanks to you. And so it was just a little bit scary. Was, okay, now you have to go out and, and do that. But at the same time, it was so freeing to know what it was that would bring me joy. And I know this sounds like awfully existential. <laughs> um, it's not like I had like a crisis in my life. It just, it's like everything fell into place. It was like Elijah A and Elijah B finally merged and I was starting to realize, okay, this is something that I, I really want to do. So it was scary, but at the same time, it was exciting. It's like, okay, yes, I finally know. And so it then involved, okay, how, 
do I actually get on this path? Because it was, you know, starting from, from not necessarily from scratch because, you know, I studied law, I worked in PR, all of that involves a lot of communication, the bulk of which is written. So it's not like I didn't have a way to kind of tap into that passion on a daily basis. But if I wanted to be, you know, in quotes, a professional writer, (laughs) then it really needed a specific journey. And I had no idea at that time how to begin that journey. And I think that's a really important point for for the audience is that, like you said, whilst you had experience of writing through day jobs and, 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 you know, the the law degree that you'd done, you hadn't actually done any form of real professional writing and certainly not, you know, non-fiction or fictional writing as such. You were starting completely from scratch. And, you know, and the, the kind of feeling scared and excited, those two feelings often come together when they're working with anybody and they're thinking about stepping into something that they've worked out they really want, whatever that is. It, both those feelings come and it's the sign you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you know that this is what you want and, you know, you, you're ready to step into it. What kind of decisions did you make? and What steps did you take to really focus on your writing to get it going? Oh, I... And by the way, I don't think this is special to me. I'm pretty sure lots of writers, I'm hopeful that lots of writers do that. And and when I like watch or listen to some of my favorite writers, they they always say something similar. I I just I I just delved into the world of writing. I, once I started to have an idea of what I wanted to talk about, I would go to the library and pick out almost every every book around that subject or books that I thought could be similar to mine. When I started thinking about writing a screenplay, I started downloading screenplays and just kind of reading those. And it's so interesting to read a screenplay or something like Friends. I could probably, within context, recite 80% of the TV show Friends. But Wow. Oh, I used to watch a lot of TV. But again, I think that's something you have to do if you're interested in screenplays. You have to watch a lot of TV and you have to read the scripts. And so it was so interesting to read the scripts because I know what's going to be said. But reading the scripts and seeing how that translates to the screen was so fascinating to me. Uh, And also a lesson because it's not something that I kind of realized. And you learn how how important the screenwriter or the script is to the TV show. And it's the same with books. It's just kind of reading books over and over again. You start picking up on the small nuances you you missed. And so that was really... (laughs) So you really immersed yourself in it. Very much so. Very much so. And... But even though I was kind of learning through that process, lots of other people kind of go to on creative writing courses and things like that. But I had a day job and it was a day job I enjoyed having and I liked working in. So I didn't really have that luxury. So even though I was picking up these skills, I started to realize, wow, a lot of nonfiction books, particularly a lot of nonfiction books about race were written in a pretty similar style. And at the risk of trivializing, obviously, a very sensitive subject, there's also kind of dour, 
you know, racism is never fun. Mm-hmm. Being a victim of racism is just not enjoyable. So it, it makes sense that these books were, were very serious, but also very touching. And even though it those were written in such a powerful style, it, it wasn't my style. And mm. I was starting to get afraid that I would have to write in a very formulaic way. That just wasn't me. And it wasn't until I picked up a book. I hadn't even heard of it. I, I can't even remember what made me pick it up. I think it's just, you know, because it has a weird title, but it's called Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Pop, uh, Puffs by <laughs> Chuck Klosterman. I think it maybe it was just like, I liked Cocoa Puffs. Maybe that was just it. <laughs> but um, I picked it up and it's this beautiful non fiction kind of narrative nonfiction slash memoir just a collection of thoughts in a like weird and quirky and funny way and then I thought oh wow this is a successful author who who writes in his own style and that really mm. that really resonated with me and it made me think that maybe there was a market and indeed a possibility for me to write that way Aha. Okay. So that book kind of gave you the confidence to let your own personality come out and write as you rather than trying to sort of follow a formula or, you know, a certain structure that a lot of those types of books in your genre were were written Mm -hmm. in. Well, and I can certainly say, having read your book, obviously many times, <laughs> that your personality comes out <laughs> full forms. It's fabulous. <laughs> okay, so you immersed yourself entirely. You allowed yourself to write as you rather than trying to be something else. Once you had your first few chapters, and so I know you wrote some short stories and some screenplays as well, like what kind of practical steps did you take to try and garner interest in, in what you were writing? Oh, so this is so interesting because in as much as I hadn't written in a like professional sense before, I had no idea about how to actually get this into the hands of a publisher. And in retrospect, there are all these amazing groups that can help writers make that journey. In fact, I'm a member of one of those groups, uh, the Black Writers Guild now, but at that time it didn't exist, but there were just, there's, there were lots of writing schemes. I, I could not emphasize how much of a novice I was, which also I think came with a little bit of hubris. It's like, oh, I've written this. I think it's very good. It's going to get published. And I just didn't really take the time to think about how to actually bring this to life in a way that it could reach as many people as possible. Mm. And so, again, that just kind of involved a lot of research. And I started researching agents who are the people who pass this on to, to um, publishers. And so I just started researching a lot of agents. And this is where your brilliant uh, 100 rejections kind of came into, into play. And the whole idea behind that particularly, or as I understood it, was instead of aiming for, I need to get representation from an agent, aim instead for, I need to get rejected by a hundred agents. Because if you do the former, every time you get a rejection, it's disheartening. Whereas if you do the latter, if you aim for the rejections, every time you get rejected, of which is very often the case, I mean, 
Harry Potter is one of the most famous literary uh, kind of books mm. in, in the UK, contemporary uh, books in the UK. And she, J.K. Rowling was rejected several times. So rejection is just the norm in the kind of entertainment literary space. If you aim for those rejections, every time you get rejection, it's just like, oh, tick, you know, I've achieved something today. And then it gives you the drive to keep moving forward. And mm. it sounds really bonkers, doesn't it? It sounds like, a, I, remember, I mean, often it's not when I suggest this to people, it doesn't really matter what the goal is. It, um, it's a really powerful psychological concept because if you're aiming, I mean, not really for rejections, but you're aiming to just get something out regardless of the rejection and you get to chalk it up, you know, as you're aiming at that 100 mark, what it does is it builds momentum. Mm -hmm. It means that you don't get completely so disheartened that you stop after after the first attempt to think, oh, well, you know, this is obviously telling me something. It's a waste of time. I shouldn't bother. Instead, you're like, okay, I've got one out of 100 onto the next one. And of course, the more steps you take, the more momentum you build, the more feedback you get, the more you can adapt, which I know you did as you were getting rejections from various places. You sort of learned how to... Well, I think when you started, you weren't even tailoring your pitches very much, were you? No, it was kind of a scattergun approach. And I was just sending it out. If there was a writer, uh, sorry, if there was an agent who represented nonfiction, I'll just send it to them. So it was in the process of sending it out, in some instances, getting feedback, in other instances, not getting feedback because they get thousands of pitches a day, they can't respond to them all. And then thinking, okay, why do I, why do I suppose that? agent didn't respond. And I think one of the great things about the 100 rejections like project is it's a win-win. You know, if you get rejected at number, at attempt number, you know, 10, you still got 90 to go. So you still got that momentum. You're still ticking the mm -hmm. box and you're still achieving what you set out to do, which was, you know, 100 rejections. But on the flip side, if you get your your manuscript accepted at attempt number 11, great, <laughs> great. Like you've got an agent. Yeah, and you've done really you've done well. Really well. <laughs> so there's no, there's no downside. There's no downside to it. You're mm. either achieving what you set out to do or you're achieving your ultimate goal. <laughs> so yeah. why, why not? And honestly... How many rejections did you get? Are you happy to share with people? How many rejections did you get before you finally got the, the, the published uh, I can't remember the number exactly, but I think it was in the 40s. I think it was maybe like 46 wow. or something. Mm -hmm. So... Wow. I still had lots more to go. <laughs> and then, you know, when it rains, it pours. I had one agent accept. And then like two days later, I had another agent accept. So... <laughs> So it worked, you know, that, that, I love it. I think that's amazing that you just kept going. And it's that, that number, I think it's quite important for people to hear because, you know, you didn't give up. And if you'd have given up at number 39, you wouldn't have got the deal that you were looking for. Exactly. I think, um, oh, sorry, I just wanted to add one thing. It's, that, mm. I think a, a good part of the like 100 Rejections pro project as well is you kind of learn to fall in love with your writing or your passion, whatever it is, because you're continuously having to do it. And so mm. you, because you're going towards a goal of a hundred, 
then you're just, you know that you have a hundred opportunities to get this right. And then it doesn't end at a hundred. Once you get to a hundred, if for some reason you haven't achieved what you want, you set yourself a target of another hundred. And then eventually you, I, I, I really do think perseverance is the way yeah, I completely agree. I've got another client who um, has just landed a publishing deal. And for her, it's taken, she's been on a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. She's been, she's had agents, she's lost agents because they, they've got fired. She's had to start all over again. And it's, you know, and it's that, like you said, actually, it's the love of her craft, the, the actual love of writing, which has sustained her. So when, her, when one of her friends was like, how are you still doing this? How are you still going when all of this, you know, you've had all of these challenges? And she's like... I can't imagine a day where I don't write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just in, in my blood and I just, I will write regardless. So yeah, I think so it's a really important point. One other thing I wanted to cover on, on the sort of the things that you did, the other thing I know you did was, was enter competitions to get feedback from agents and that kind of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that'd be quite useful for people to know. Yeah, honestly, the first, like my introduction into the world of agency was through a competition. I, as I mentioned, I was such a novice. I didn't know anything about getting published. And then one day a a friend of mine sent me this competition and just said, Hey, I know you're right. You should enter this competition. I said, Oh, that sounds great. I'm at work. I'll, I'll look at it later. And then I finished work around six o'clock and I looked at it and the deadline was like 7 PM. (laughs) And I was like, okay, (laughs) And so all I had was like one barely finished chapter of the clapback. And the the deadline was like seven o'clock. So I had an hour, but they fortunately only wanted a thousand words. So I was able to pick out the best bits and then kind of send it off. And lo and behold, I was one of the winners of the competition. And the prize was a 15 minute conversation with an agent. So it was a combination of luck, but also having the material. And this is why it's so important as a writer to always write, because you never know when someone might be like, oh, hey, can you send this to me? I met an agent yeah. randomly and I was talking to her about, I met her at an event and I was talking to her about my book and she was like, oh, could you, oh, it's a shame. Like uh, I have a long train journey and I don't have anything to read. I was like, oh, I have it in my backpack, <laughs> you know. I, it's just, <laughs> let, me, exactly. let me give this to I you. I would just carry my script around. And it wasn't, it wasn't for the purposes of just handing it out. It was more so just so that I can read it every day and, and have it. And so I think it's the same with entering competitions, right? It's just... Mm every opportunity to practice your craft, every opportunity to, you know, if you're a comedian, try out the jokes on, on friends at networking events, at mm-hmm. dinner parties. If you're a writer, yeah. write amazing birthday and thank you notes. You know, if you want love to be <laughs> a skateboarder, just skate to work one day. Yeah, these two things, any opportunity where you can, a practice and B showcase your craft. I think helps you yeah. get to your main goal faster and easier. 
Absolutely. Embrace your passion. But I love that. I love the idea of carrying your, carrying your scooter around <laughs> in the backpack. And actually, because whether you're tinkering with it or you've just, it's there for the opportunity, you know, with any given opportunity, because you never mm-hmm. know. Um, that's fabulous. Okay, so it took three or four years of really tenacious effort on your part. <laughs> you know, pitching, repitching, getting the rejections, trying again, doing the competitions and that kind of thing until you ended up in a bidding war with, with two publishers and you chose Hodder and Stoughton and the clapback came out uh, in 2019. Looking back on your whole experience, what were the biggest lessons that you learned through that whole process? Particularly, I guess, now that you're, I know you're writing your second book and you're effectively about to start all over again, and this time in a different country because you're in San Francisco now. So what did you learn through that process that you wish you might have known when you started that you didn't? Oh, it's, and this is probably the less sexy part of following your passion. But honestly, the one thing I learned is it's not enough to it's not enough to just be good at what you do and it's not just enough to love your passion you have to learn about the industry of your passion i have no regrets about how i ended up where i ended up but i wish i could go back in time and just even just learn about how a book goes from concept to being published I would be in these meetings where people would be talking about sales and how they can position the book. And, I, and they would ask me and I would just go, whatever you think is right. I just hadn't thought about it. And so the mm. assumption that all you have to be is good at your, at your job, it just doesn't work, particularly for like entertainment industries and creative industries, mm. because you are not producing something that is objectively useful and enjoyable. <laughs> it's very subjective. And so it has to be positioned in a particular way. Mm. You have to treat your passion like a small business, like your small business, where you can have suppliers, uh, you could have vendors, but it very much is yours and you need to understand how that business works. So now I, I just bought... Uh, and, and finished a book about how the Marvel Cinematic Universe came together. And it's nothing about the creative, okay. very, it's very scant on these are how the creative writers did this and very much the business of here are the people they spoke to, here's what the production studio did, here's where they had to film, here were, like, here is the conflict between marvel tv and the marvel movies you know the business of how it works and i listen to lots of podcasts about hollywood and they're just things that i just never even thought about i I listened to Mm -hmm. a great podcast called the town and they had an episode on casting directors and that's just not something i never even thought of before you know how people get cast for roles and so it's the same for the book and now that I'm starting this process all over again, I'm learning about the US market. I went to the library yesterday to get another book that is pretty similar to, not similar in content, but similar in like overall theme of what I'm trying to, to write in my second book. So it's a lot of work, but again, it can only be a benefit in the long run, learning yeah. about the industry of what you're passionate about. You know, it can't, 
you can't, it's not enough to just like, I love designing cars. You have to learn about the business of safety, uh, regulation on the roads, transportation mm. regulation, which countries like your particular kind of car. <laughs> you can't just go, oh, I'm just going to design a car and, and that's it. <laughs> so that was a hard lesson to learn, but one that I'm really grateful that I eventually did. And there are probably more lessons mm. to learn. And again, it's just by doing it over and over again that you get better and you learn. You get better mm-hmm. at it. Yeah. And I think also, I remember you saying a long time later that you would have changed the, it was at the publishing rights that were given to the, to the publisher. Yes. Yes. This is a specific example, but um, my publisher, we gave them Commonwealth rights. And in retrospect, I would have given them worldwide rights because now I'm in America. Okay. People ask me about my book and how to how to get it. And I'm like, oh, you have to get it on Amazon. And people, a lot of people are a little bit kind of down on Amazon. Like, oh, mm. we'd probably prefer to get it from like a bookstore. It's like, wow, oh, it's going to be a specialty bookstore if it's okay. here. Whereas Europe and worldwide rights... Shakespeare Company, which is one of the oldest bookstores in the world in Paris, had the book and I was so happy and I was amazed. But if I hadn't, if they hadn't had the rights to do that, then I wouldn't have Mm -hmm. had that opportunity to be a part of this amazing bit of human history. So that was just a lesson to learn. That was just another lesson in that business world. Okay, okay. Well, actually, then talking about the book, could you just give a quick pricey of what the clapback is about for the audience and, and let everybody know where they can find a copy? Because genuinely, people, it's brilliant and it's well worth a read. It's really informative, but also very oh, Thank you so much. So the clapback looks at all of the, or at least uh, 11 major stereotypes about the black community and then seeks to debunk them uh, using science, reasoning, but also helps you just kind of understand why those stereotypes are offensive and delves into the history of where a lot of those stereotypes come from. And Mm. it's not going to be surprising that the common denominator is racism, but helping the reader understand that stereotypes that might seem like they may be just jovial are actually really, really harmful. And then it empowers the reader to be able to push back on those stereotypes and help them also debunk it in conversations with their friends and and family. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the kind of humorous tone because I I didn't want it to be a satire. I'm not particularly good at satire, but also just helping people understand from a practical level how Mm. just kind of, again, at the risk of trivializing it, just how silly racism is. It it doesn't make sense. The color of my skin doesn't have any impact on how I should behave. Those are societal reactions. So there's a stereotype that Black people are very fast runners. The color of my skin has nothing to do with how fast my muscles can move. In the same way, a Ferrari that's painted yellow cannot be faster than the same Ferrari that's painted blue. You know, that's that's just unreasonable. And people (laughs) understand that. So once you apply that same logic to human beings, why would the color Mm -hmm. of my skin have anything to do with how fast my muscles can move? 
it, it, that just doesn't make yeah. sense. So um, that's kind of what the book uh, aims to do. Brilliant. And where can people find ah. copy? So obviously Amazon, <laughs> Amazon. <laughs> if they are outside the, the Commonwealth. Yeah, any any book re- retailers, uh, particularly if your audience are in London, uh, any book retailers, both online and in stores, libraries. I'm a huge fan of libraries. They really did help me with my research. So if you could please support your local library, um, that would be great. But I mean, just a hearty Google search will bring you with a plethora of options in terms of where you can get it (laughs) well i will also include a link in the show notes so people can easily just click a link and find it So listen, Elijah, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. You know, I think it's, it's provided some real, hopefully some real inspiration as well as practical guidance for anybody who's got a similar kind of dream, you know, whether that's fiction or nonfiction. So thank you, thank you Pleasure. for coming on, taking the time. For the audience, you know, if, if you know anyone who could do with hearing this conversation and the insights from Elijah's journey, please do share this episode, you know, share the love. You know, from a personal point of view, if you have a dream and you really, whether it's whether it's to write or whether it's anything else, you know, I genuinely believe in your ability to make that dream a reality. So go do your thing. So thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care. Thank you for listening today. I hope our time together has got you thinking about your own adventure in happiness. So please do get in touch. I'd love to hear more about your story. And why not join our Dream Chasers Unite community? There is nothing better than an adventure shared. Until next time, be brave and go create what you crave.